Hello and welcome to Systematically, your weekly theology podcast. I'm John Heaps talking to you from Austin, Texas. I'm here with Robin Beret. Hey, Robin. Good morning. And Ryan Hemmer. Hi, Ryan. Good morning, everybody. And uh, we're going to kind of pick up where we left off from last week. Last week, we were talking about some of my uh, thoughts and interventions and ideas about the problem of the supernatural. And um, we mostly surveyed my, my critical kind of gripes about the discourse. And so today we're going to talk about some of my uh, constructive ideas about things. But uh, Robin is just right in the thick of having a newborn in her life. And uh, so we thought we'd chat a little bit about uh, the various strategies we've had in our households for, for dealing with being up in the middle of the night with a, with a, a wee babe. Um, so hey, how's it going for you, Robin? I mean, overall, it's going pretty well. I can't complain. She's been pretty good to us. That or she's, uh, it's part of her long-term strategy where she lulls us into like some sense of like, <laughs> you know, complacency and whatever, and then just breaks us. Um, yeah. Not sure Baby's famously disciplined convent. They, they will really, they'll run the long con. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like super long. So. <laughs> Well, see, I think she's waiting until Neil goes back to work and then it's just me looking after her, like doing mm-hmm. like everything by myself. And then she's just going to like freak out. Brain. Yeah. But the nights aren't the nights aren't too bad. Yeah. No, nah, she sleeps like she goes to bed at nine pretty reliably, no matter what else happens during the day. And uh, she usually sleeps like somewhere between a three to five hour stretch. Wow. And then after that. It kind of depends on if she slept a five hour stretch, she tends to sleep like little one or two hour stretches after that. And if she sleeps a three hour, she tends to give us like two, three hour stretches and then kind of the dribblings afterwards. So it's not too bad. The real toss up is how long it takes her to go back to sleep the first time she wakes up. Because that yeah. get, can be kind of long sometimes. And how's, and how's, how's Neil? How's he hanging in there? Oh man, Neil's a champ. That man, like, so the other day we had to go somewhere and like I hopped in the shower. I got out of the shower and he'd laid her clothes for the day out on the bed. Aww. He packed a diaper bag and he completely prepped her bath and was just about to put her in. What a boss. Yeah. I'm like, I didn't even, I'm like, oh, I guess we should bathe her today. It's been like a day or two. Um, <laughs> when, when I try to bathe my kids, I, I do it so infrequently that like I can see the fear in their eyes. <laughs> <laughs> they, they're like you don't we know you know don't know what you're doing yeah i bathed her once and she's four weeks old and i've only bathed her once wow um and uh yeah no he's great he's usually up with me at night and so now you know when she was young like smaller she would like eat and just fall asleep on the boob and then go right down but now she likes to eat and then she likes to just have some time where she's rocked to sleep so he does that is great. Nice. Yeah. Ryan, I remember the days when Amelia was so little and so, 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 so mad. She was so mad. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Only at night for the most part. I mean, Hmm. she was pretty, pretty delightful during the day, but uh, yeah, it was pretty much like every two hours on the dot for the first like Four months uh, from seven o'clock to seven o'clock basically was just two hours up, two hours up, two hours up. But we had kind of a, uh, probably I'm sure it wasn't equitable, but we had a division of labor such that uh, we d- we had decided since I, I really can't fall back asleep once I'm awake, uh, or, or at least not without a lot of difficulty. So we kind of just divided the night up. So I, Kate kind of took the first shift and I would, I would try to sleep as, mu- as many consecutive hours as I could and then sort of take over around four or five and then do everything from there on. And then Kate would sleep as many hours as she could. So what that, what that does in practice, I think is good because it, it um, gets you a few more REM cycles in there. but it does amplify the boredom problem, Ooh, yeah. which I, which I sort of find to be the, the, the sort of underrated uh, challenge with, 
nights with newborns is it's boring. <laughs> yeah, when the, when the kids are when the kids are still dumber than the pets. Yeah, there yeah, there's certain sure. stretches. It's like, all right, well, yeah. you smiled at me, like, and that's well, cool. But I probably shouldn't turn the TV on because I don't want the light to keep them awake. I want them to focus yeah. on what they're doing, and uh, you know, can't read because again, there's no light on. Yeah. So you're just kind of sitting in the dark with your thoughts, and yeah. most of your thoughts are bad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then, yeah, you're like. <laughs> Should I throw the baby across the room or out the window? Well, I wasn't just, I wasn't thinking bad in terms of evil. I just mean oh. bad in terms of their uh, quality because ah. you, uh, you haven't slept much. And, you know, when the lower schemes of recurrence break down, so too do the higher ones. Yeah. <laughs> Vertical so, finality. Baby. It's, mostly, it's mostly just the meow mix song over and over. <laughs> so do you guys have favorite strategies for your middle of the night, you know? Well, I I confess I was almost never up in the middle of the night. Uh, our division of labor was like Annie had had decent <clears throat> had decent leave, so she was home for a while, and so um, I would get up about five thirty six, um, and like it was it was it was like uh, a sprint all day to like keep the house going, do the dishes, cook. Um, laundry watch the kid when annie would take a nap etc cetera, etc cetera. um so i was like i was making i was making the machine run around uh as frictionless as possible around the the dyad of annie and, and oscar the first time we did it it was more complicated obviously when we had number two but um but yeah the first time we did it it was i was getting i was you know getting seven hours of sleep six and a half hours of sleep um which when you have a newborn is pretty good but then it was just open throttle from when I woke up to when I went to bed every day um, just to make so that Andy did, like, didn't have to do anything except like be a mom while she was conscious. Um, so that, that, I mean, that worked for us. It was a good division of labor. She runs better on interrupted sleep than I do. I, I decompensate pretty quick. So that was, that was the arrangement that worked for us. Um, but it did mean that there were like, you know, long afternoons of holding the baby and, you know, I was rested, so my thoughts were a little higher quality, but they didn't have anywhere to go. Uh, <laughs> though I did, though it was light out, so at least I was able to like, man, they're going to talk about this in therapy someday. You know, watch things like Archer uh, <laughs> while holding an infant, just counting on, they're not linguistically conscious yet. It's fine. None of and you, and you keep doing that self-talk until an <laughs> undefined line approaches. Yep. Uh, and, in, and inevitably you cross it. Um, yeah. I yeah. still, at some point, like both of my kids watch Bob's Burgers with me, which is mostly fine because mostly the things that are inappropriate are like slight, are kind of elusive because it's network TV. Mm-hmm. Um, but every episode, one of the characters drops an SOB and I'm just waiting for that to get repeated back. We'll mm-hmm. see. I think we've just accepted that our kids are going to swear because we're not really motivated to stop doing it. <laughs> so, you know, it's just going to happen. Oscar repeated a swear back to me pretty early on, and that was a that was a gut check. Um, but he it didn't like stick; it didn't it didn't lodge in there. Um, I think but, if you don't make a big deal out of it, it doesn't lodge in the same way as you're like oh, you can't say yeah, that. Yeah, no, we didn't. I I pretty well got it out of my system during my my stay at home dad sojourn for those couple of years, uh, and if I was the only adult around. I could, I could sort of do all of the swearing internally. <laughs> right. Didn't, yeah. didn't have to. There were, there were plenty of inner words, just not outer words. It was just, it was I and no thou. So yeah, that's right. Uh, but now that I like get to see grownups a little more frequently in my day to day life, um, you know, old habits have reemerged um, <laughs> without skipping a beat. Well, and you lived in close proximity to me for a while, and well, that's, that's not a good true. influence. Yeah. yeah. My uh, favorite my my favorite thing is that is like cell phone technology because a cell phone just just doesn't give off much light especially if you put it on like the dimmest setting. Yeah. So at night I just watch Netflix on my phone. Great. In the dark. But Neil's usually up too. So we now we've started to like have like themed nights. So like some nights we watch <laughs> Father Brown because like British shows are so <laughs> 
Like you're so relaxing, even though people yeah. are getting murdered. It's just like the most relaxing. Oh, you're not going to get worked up. Well, and it, Father Brown's like British daytime TV. So it's not even like the high drama of primetime BBC. No, it's, <laughs> so it's perfect for the middle of the night. And actually, I've seen them all already because this is what I've discovered about myself. I can't watch new things at night because when she goes down, I want to be able to go back to sleep and yep. I can't watch half of a show and then not know how it finishes. But then last night, our theme was like um, Creed style music. So we watched like endless music <laughs> videos of like, you know, that there's just that sound, right? Yep. Like mm-hmm. Creed has it. And um, like if like if Eddie Vedder wasn't talented. Yeah. And the calling and Pearl Jam and Our Lady Peace. And like, they're all just like of a type, right? Yeah. And so we just like went nostalgia music video watching at the various times in which we woke up. <laughs> so I think that's now like our new coping mechanism is just to theme like, you know, one night we'll have I, our I just assume you and Kate text all night. Well, I mean, Kate <laughs> sleeps at night, so I send her messages. <laughs> yeah, I now talk to your wife about like three <laughs> 10 times as much as I talk to you. My that's, evenings are mostly together. Speaking of <laughs> profanity, my evenings are mostly hearing my wife curse under her breath while Kate kicks the crap out of her at cribbage on her phone. <laughs> well, how do I get it on phone cribbage? Well, I think you can ask and you can get, oh, man. You get the number of times at about 845 where I've heard Kate say, come on, Annie, just play so I can go to bed. Uh, is <laughs> If I had a, if I had a dollar, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Got to monetize. Um, okay, so last time I gave a, kind of a long spiel about the the history of the um, problem of the supernatural in its sort of broadest terms, from Augustine up to Milbank and Stephen A. Long and the like, and um, and you know, and, and some of what I was griping about was the 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 tendency of theologians to not dig into the philosophical issue, issues that are underlying the problematic. Um, and so some of what I want to talk about today is, you know, when you, when you dig into the underlying philosophical questions and, and specifically for my money, the questions about agency, um, you, you can discover a couple of implications that are, uh, in the neighborhood of the way the problems get talked about, but not very often faced up to in any kind of rigorous or thorough way. And um, one of these is, you know, the the problem of the supernatural often gets hashed out in terms of um, philosophical ontology. And it's, and this is actually uh, Neil Ormerod, I have it on good authority, has an an article coming out, which Ryan and I have both seen presented on a few times. Um, where he sort of wants to nudge the conversation in a more expressly theological vein. So he wants to nudge it into a Trinitarian theological um, discourse. I think that's well and good. But, uh, but mostly it happens at the level of, of ontology. Uh, and sometimes it's a, a rigorously philosophical ontology. Sometimes it's this kind of weird in-between, um, not quite theological ontology. Um, but the, you know, the thing that Lonergan saw when he was working on his uh, dissertation and when he was revising it for theological studies, uh, and it's published now as Grace and Freedom, is, you know, people talk about this problem of uh, freedom and of operative grace and of cooperative grace and all these things. And mostly what people do is they assume that they already know what operation is. They already know what causation is. They know what freedom is. Um, and so you have these debates. You know, lately, I, I see them on Twitter, and it's these fights where it's like, we have no idea if people are, are equivocating or not because no one slows down to like define their term. Um, but, but Lonergan spends just page after page after page rehearsing Thomas's theory of, of operation, of causation, and of action. And um, he, the, the really central point for Lonergan in this is uh, an augmentation that Thomas makes to Aristotle's theory of action. Because in Aristotle's theory of action, the, there is one action 
And whether something is called a, an agent or whether it's a patient is something that is determined uh, based on their, uh, their sort of relative position within the single action. So is the action, uh, the action is, uh, or excuse me, agency is, is predicated of one of the terms uh, because the act comes from that, right? It's received from that. Um, and then patient is the one who receives the act of the agent. Um, and so you have, you have a, re- uh, a single relation, right? You have a single kind of event of the action. And then the status as agent or patient is something that's defined based on your, your sort of position within the relation. And the thing that, uh, and, and Aristotle does all, the, does all this in terms of sort of various sort of grammatical um, relations in terms of speaking about mover and moved and moving and all this kind of stuff. So it's a little opaque. It's a little difficult to get your head around what he's up to. Um, though the, the, the Greek language helps you a little bit. As always, Aristotle is adapting the Greek language to his technical purposes. And what Thomas does is he says, well, look, part of the issue here is that um, people assume that the 10 predicaments are species of a genus. Um, he says, terms are not, the, the, these, these predicaments are not all predicated in the same way. And I won't go through all of them, but there's a kind of basic distinction between things which are predicated intrinsically of something, uh, which is to say it's predicated on the basis of the presence of some quality or number or whatever in the thing that you're talking about. But there's also extrinsic predication. And extrinsic predication is where you, you say something true about something on the basis of the reality of something else. And he says agency is predicated by extrinsic predication that you call something an agent on the basis of the existence of the effect of the patient. And the reason this is important is because that means that there doesn't have to be something going from possibly an agent to actually an agent doesn't have to involve a change in the agent because the truth of the predication of actual agency or, or agency in, in actuality is not on the basis of something in the agent. It's on the basis of the existence of the effect. Uh, and, and the reason that's important is because if that's true, you can have an unmoved mover. You can, you can have uh, a mover that is not itself moving. You can have a first cause in that sense, which for Aristotle is a big deal. Uh, and Thomas is going to integrate Aristotle's account of the unmoved mover of a first cause into his, um, what today we call classical theism. And uh, so Thomas is invested in it too, but Thomas uh, with his uh, usual uh, insight is able to identify, look, part of the problem of people misunderstanding and misinterpreting Aristotle on this is they don't understand the the proper mode of predication, this extrinsic mode of predication. Uh, And, and, you know, and so from this, you'll also get sort of um, an account of divine, uh, of creation um, and of divine agency in general, that's by contingent predication. So how is it that a God who acts necessarily can have contingent effects? Well, you predicate things truly of God as effects of God's action, um, and it's on the basis of things that are themselves contingent. And how do you know they're contingent? Well, they have God's action as their condition, which we're going to come back to. Anyway, questions about that? Well, so then theologically, they would say like there are things that are like so that god's agency is extrinsic to him that seems like a strange claim to make no the um the so so it's predicated extrinsically right um so that so god's act is still intrinsic to god um because it's god's act that's communicated to the effects as in any case of causation for aristotle right um the 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 agent of some effect has to itself be in act um, the, the question theologically is, are there any ad extra acts of God? Um, is there, is there, is there, are there any acts that God, uh, is the agent of that have an effect that isn't just God's own necessary eternal being? Um, obviously to speak of God as an effect of his own action is like a, a little, a little weird, but you take the point maybe, huh? Um, 
So, so this is maybe a good contrast. So Stephen A. Long makes this mistake. Stephen A. Long says uh, that being the cause of the world is accidentally predicated of God. Um, that, which is weird because accidents are, in, are intrinsically predicated of something. And so to say that, uh, to say that God, God being the cause of the world is accidentally predicated of God is to attribute to God, an accident to God. Um, and Lonergan is very careful not to do that. And that's why he, he develops this notion of extrinsic predication. Where he says, no, no, no. The, the, statement of, the statement of God being the creator is um, it's still a true statement about God. Um, but it's true on the basis of the existence of the effect. So these statements are simultaneous in truth, right? Um, which is to say that... Uh, to say that creatures are the effect of God's action, um, it is simultaneously true then to say that God is the, is the creator of creatures. Um, and both of them are true on the basis of the same thing, which is the existence of creatures, the existence of things that are not God, that God causes to be. Um, and this is, of course, the ground of the uh, endlessly misunderstood um, claim in Thomas that God is not really related to creatures. Right? Creatures are really related to God because the real relation they have is one of absolute ontological dependence. Um, whereas God is not really related to creatures in the sense that like, um, there isn't, uh, there isn't going to be that kind of duality. There isn't going to be that. Um, and, and there also isn't going to be change and there isn't going to be dependence. There isn't going to be all that kind of stuff, right? There's just, um, God, be in God, right? The single, pure, eternal act of God. Um, this, is, this is also why in the, in the sort of medieval context with the, the arguments that all the Aristotelians are having about, um, about freedom's relation to the eternality of, of the world, right? This is sort of how Thomas is able to resolve um, the, the problem of eternality and creation by base, by moving the question out of um, time and, uh, and clarifying that, that what is it really is one of, uh, of an agent patient relation. Can you, and hey, so can you can you, still uh, say, a, can you repeat that part? We, you glitched a little bit on us. Oh, and I want, I want people to hear it. So, so Thomas moves uh, the question from what? So he, he moves the question from one about sequence, where, where causality is, is largely cashed out in terms of um, prior and subsequent in a sequence of time or a sequence of events, to moving, moving to a notion of, of causation in terms of dependence, of, of patient upon agent, such that he's able to say that even if those who argue like Aristotle, that the, that the world is eternal, even if that's true, um, it, it actually doesn't matter for um, our ability to say of the world that it is created by God. That it, the world's being created by God isn't about the, the prior and the subsequent uh, series of acts and effects, but rather one of ontological relation. That the world that is, even if that world is eternal and has never not existed, exists as a relation of dependence upon God. Um, Go ahead. No, I'm just wondering how that works. Like, I mean, because like the entire, I mean, the entire argument, Trinitarian argument, say with the Arians, is about whether like Jesus is also eternal, whether at some point he was created, right? Right. So then they say, well. No, no, he was always eternal. Um, but surely if, if the world can be eternal but still caused by God, then don't you end up with a Trinitarian problem where, like, Jesus could be eternal but, like... Well, the, in, the creed, the it's not, in, in the creed, it's not put in terms of eternality. It's put in terms of, of creator-creature relation, right? Begot, right, but I begotten, mean, not made. But functionally, how do you have a... Um, a causation like a different causation without time being involved 
because it's because it's about um the sufficiency of a thing to be the principle of its own first act and so um whatever the world is however long the world has existed even if it's always existed you can still ask the question independent of time and sequence does the is the created world the principle of its own first act does it is it the reason that it exists this is this is maybe the place where i can tie it into the the supernatural right so one of the um one of the possible gripes is, is like, okay, cool. You're talking about providence. You're talking about the doctrine of creation. What does it have to do with the nature grace problem? Um, and this is another augmentation that Thomas brings to some of these insights is, um, so, so with, I mentioned this last time, but, but with, uh, Philip, Philip the chancellor, with, uh, Albert the great, with Propositinus, you get this notion of, uh, two orders within creation. Um, you get the, and this is where you get the sort of the theorem of the supernatural, right? You have reason is the highest thing in nature and faith is above reason. You have the natural love of God and you have, uh, the love of the supernatural love of charity, which is higher than that. Um, and so you have two orders that are disproportionate to one another, right? There's, there's the love that's proportionate to my being and there's the love that's disproportionate to it. There's, um, there's the, the sort of mode of cognition that's proportionate to my being, and there's the mode that's disproportionate and has to be given as a gift. Um, and one of the things that Thomas takes from that formal relation, that theorem, is it augments his theory of transcendence. So that um, one way of thinking about God being the creator is that no creature is proportionate to being the cause of existence. Um, that That only God is, um, because God is, is pure, infinite act, only God is proportionate to being the cause of existence in everything, right? Back to the creeds, right? All things, visible and invisible. Um, and that's sort of why the logic of the, of the Nicene Creed works, right? Is, is you, can, um, you can sort of have this exhaustive dichotomy of, you know, well, look, if, if God the Father is omnipotent, maker of all things, and Jesus is not made, well, then there's only one other column that Jesus falls into. Um, and, you don't, and you don't necessarily have to do it in terms of sequence, in terms of time, in terms of the contrast between time and eternity. Uh, with angels, you're going to have a similar kind of problem um, because angels seem to have a, a, a capacity for a kind of change that's not temporal. Um, so, you know, you get all those kind of things. But the... But the, the root of it is, is, so on the one hand, from theology, Thomas's ontology takes this notion of disproportion, this theorem of the supernatural, and augments his theory of the creator's transcendence with it, because only, the, only God is proportionate to being the, the cause of existence per se. Um, but then, and this is the part of my argument, is, um, well, then, if God is the cause of all existence, if God is the, the cause of the reality of causation, of action, um, then included in God's ad extra agency, right, in God's, God's causality vis-a-vis the world, um, you have that, ge- that general relationship of God, that this is, a, this is a sort of completely extensive theory of God's agency, and so then uh, it can provide a philosophical analog for the account of grace. So that um, grace is a sort of specific instance of God's ad extra agency. Uh, and now it's going to get, it's going to have its various modifications, right? It's not a complete explanation of grace. It's not a reduction of grace to just, oh, one other instance of God's ad extra agency. Um, but nonetheless, it's still, if it really is a theory of God's ad extra agency, then it's also going to be one of the theorematic elements in an account of grace. Um, and so one of my criticisms of the conversation is like, people aren't going all the way down to that level. Um, there, and this is what happens with the neo the neo scholastics all the time is you sort of get the sense that like, um, the, the world like is just kind of this given and then grace is sort of slathered on top of it. Um, and that's what the gift people are all griping about. It's like, Hey, there's a doctrine of creation here and that's gratuitous too. So do you think then like theoretically grace exists as part of God's ad extra agency if creation doesn't exist? Uh, it, it couldn't, right? There'd be no, um, there'd be no, uh, term of the ad extra agency. 
Okay. Um, this is my beef about Clar- like clarifying for my own brain. Yeah. Um, this is my beef about uncreated grace. Um, uncreated grace is just God. Um, right. So I, you know, I sort of, people trot that out sometimes and I'm like, what are we talking about? Uh, uncreated can only ever mean one thing, either nothing or God. Those are the options. Um, okay. So, so that part is, is sort of helpful, right? Because then when you talk about, um, when, you, when you zoom in from this broad ontology of creation, and you zoom into human beings, and you zoom into human beings as causes, and you zoom in specifically to the, the properly human mode of causation, which is to say um, free causation, uh, willing if you want. The thing about the universality of God's causation of all created causes is that, um, and because of contingent predication, you can say that God causes um, created causes, whatever their mode of emergence, necessary, contingent, free, whatever. Um, and so then what's God's role? What's, what's God doing in my free action? Causing it to be and to be in its mode, which is to say free. So you can be sort of cute, which I, li- I like to do. Uh, and say, you know, that, that God's ad extra agency is fundamentally liberative. Why? Because it makes free human action possible at all. Um, that if, if, God's, if, God was, if we were not related to God in this mode of dependence, uh, there wouldn't be any free action per se. Um, and, so, uh, and so you get the sort of thing that Blondell will play with sometimes, which is that human autonomy is rooted in a heteronomy. Right, that there couldn't be any human autonomy unless there was this heteronomy with, with regard to God's action yeah, and God's intention. I mean, Pink Ayers has an article about that in Thomas too, right? About uh, I can't remember the title of the article, but the subtitle is like autonomy and heteronomy in Thomas Aquinas. Yeah, I think um, I've read that. It's good. And um, it's kind of it kind of makes the same argument that for Thomas, like there's no division between heteronomy and autonomy because human autonomy is only fulfilled in doing what God wills. And therefore, basically, they end up being the same thing. Right. And, but then the, so, okay, so this brings me to my, this is sort of my first um, constructive point, which is, um, but, but if, God's ca- if God's ad extra agency causes things to be in their mode of emergence, then what does God will? Well, at, at the very least, God wills our freedom. And not just our freedom, like, in general, but our, like, the exercise of our freedom. And not just our freedom as, like, order to the good or something, though that too. Um, but our freedom, like, as, as free, whatever freedom is. Um, and so one of the things that Lonergan's good and critical of in, in approaches to the question of grace and freedom prior to Thomas is, you, you get accounts of grace and freedom where um, freedom is, is articulated in terms of grace, right? Freedom is just like doing what God gives you the grace to do, um, which doesn't help you solve the problem of like, yeah, yeah but how is that freedom? Because you don't, you don't actually have a, a, a stated theory of freedom in those terms. Um, you really just have grace. And so this is part of what the theorem of the supernatural is supposed to do, right? It opens up what Lonergan calls a, a line of reference called nature. It lets you speak of, nat- of, uh, of nature um, and also to then of freedom just on its own terms. Now, admittedly, in the concrete, grace and freedom are, are mixed together, but that's like why there's a question. Um, and so, yes, this is a, like, yes, this is a kind of uh, tool of thought, but that's the, the whole enterprise is a, is a problem of thought, right? It's I have a question to which I need an answer, and that's like what thinking is. Um, well, it, it also helps you then uh, to avoid the error of thinking that anything you don't as yet understand is a divine mystery. Right. right. It, it allows you to clarify the questions that you, ha- that you don't have answers to because their answer is disproportionate to human knowledge because it's a communication of the divine nature. And those questions that are just like, 
difficult and require more work. <laughs> um, and the great breakthrough that the theorem makes possible is it clarifies that the question of human freedom and of human free action is not a question, the apex of whose intelligibility is hidden in God. It is a quote-unquote natural problem. It's and a problem is, whose answer is proportionate to human understanding. Right. Race, however, is not. <laughs> so in theory, we can explain human freedom. Yes. Yeah. Um, which that doesn't which make is, it easy or likely. It just means that in itself, it is proportionate. And it doesn't make your theory right and all that yeah. stuff. But th this is one of the right. This is one of the big problems, especially in Millbank, is there's a tendency to appeal to paradox on the question of human of human freedom and, and of creaturely being in general, um, in a way that like yeah, paradox is helpful for articulating what the question is, but it's not an answer to the question. It, it's like explicitly not an answer to the question. Well, you're not Lutheran. <laughs> True. Um, okay. So, but the. So what was, what was the point of sort of getting into that? Well, the, the point of getting into that is that, well, if God is the cause of all created causes, without exception, and that includes my free action, and so part of what God wills is the exercise of my, exercise of my freedom, then you, you get into this. And its effects. And its effects, true, which we'll get to later. Part of, well, now you've got this weird rebound effect where does God's action make any difference? Well, yes, in that God's action makes a fundamental difference, which is to say it makes the absolute difference. It makes the difference between being and not being. But at least at the level of this philosophical ontology, does God's action, is God acting in this cause differently from that cause? No. Is God acting differently in this human action from that human action? No, God's acting on all of them universally to cause them to be at all. And so can you have a science of creaturely being that just like algebraically cancels God's agency? Yeah. Because God's agency has the same value on every side of every functional equation you could gin up um god's action is going to have the same significance at least at the level of philosophical ontology uh in every deliberation which is like what influence is god's action going to have in my cooperation with god well god's going to cause my ethic my uh agency to be efficacious um and so as a result right you can you can say well on the one hand god's action makes the biggest difference and that's really important and it's also true, which is a big deal. Um, but on the, on the other hand, in terms of intramundane concerns, God's action at the level of philosophical ontology makes no difference. It's, uh, you, you remember the, uh, well, you, all, you guys have undergrads, so of course you, you have shown them uh, David Foster Wallace's, you know, this is water speech. <laughs> yeah. Knowledge. And the, the, the dad joke that the entire speech is predicated on, right? you know, is one what fish water. asking another fish what water is. And the response being, you know, WTF is water. Yep. Uh, so there's the, the universality of, of, you know, the aquatic environment is such that you don't actually have to ask or answer the question of what water is in order for the entire ecosystem to truck along for you perfectly normally. Right. Um, so any any kind of um, universally given set of circumstances or universally applied uh, set of acts is such that you can consider the effects while having bracketed that universality, and the data don't change. Um, and that, and you also oh yeah go ahead. I was gonna say that that kind of fundamentally separates then like human action from then the miraculous i guess like we can talk about basically god's like direct intervention or action as separate from or different than his action that basically supports the existence of human act or human freedom like, what well you, i'm just wondering what you do yeah. with the miraculous or, or um, god's direct intervention in this scheme at, at this level um my argument would be there can't be any philosophical consideration of miracle 
um, miracles are just events. And the question is, uh, do they occur or don't they? Um, and, and not even as a class, right? Just like, did the event occur? Yes. Okay, then it's possible. But then can't you talk about the causation of that event philosophically? Um, yeah, but when it comes to God, the causation is going to be philosophically no different from any other event. God caused it. Right. Done. Um, and that's the whole discussion at the at, at philosophical level. And, and, and we know God caused it because the, the event exists or it happened and it's not the principle of its own existence. Right. And that's it. That's the whole that's thing. That's the whole thing. Um, now, theologically, you can talk about miracles because you can, on the basis of revelation, make, make uh, specific claims about what God is doing in those acts. Right. Um, but at the level of philosophical ontology, yeah, I, I just don't think you can distinguish miracle as a category. Um, you, can say, you can say, boy, that existing event sure is confusing and I don't know why it happened. Um, but I mean, I, I made this point to um, Matthew Levering one time when he was at Marquette about the resurrection. He said, look, from a philosophical standpoint, or even I think he was talking about apologetics, like the resurrection is just a really unlikely resuscitation. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the theological claim about the resurrection is that God has done something. Uh, and that for philosophy is just going to be, it's going to be mystery. It's going to be something that you can't say anything about philosophically. Um, and you have to, on the basis of revelation, make some, some claim. Um, but let's put a flag in that because that's going to be another point I'm going to come back to. Um, in the sort of, so the, there's this first point about what I call the ambiguity of being, which is um, that you can't, because of the universality of the divine concursus, of, of cooperation of causes with God, um, there's this ambiguity philosophy faces to either give that dependence of every created cause on a transcendent term significance, but a significance that's heuristic, right? That, that philosophy can't know like what God is or what God's intention is. Um, or you just bracket it and you, you say, yeah, like that's a question you can ask. Why is there something instead of nothing? Um, but like answers don't seem to be forthcoming on that. Uh, and the answer that would come wouldn't necessarily make any difference anyway, philosophically speaking. Um, and so we're just going to take existence as a matter of fact. Uh, this, is what, um, this is what Sartre does in Being and Nothingness. Is he basically says, like, look, being is, is self, self-identical plenitude. And so the idea of like explaining why there's being, stop it. Don't, you don't need to ask that question. There's no answer to that question. Being just is. Um, and in fact, in order to get the sort of reflective distance to ask that question, you have to introduce nothingness to being. Uh, and so really, it's nothingness that explains the determinateness of being. Um, and then he has, you know, pages and pages of his arguments about that. Can't, I'm, not, I'm not sure if this is just a really stupid point or, but I mean, if so, if that's the case, Right. Mm-hmm. And being you just take as, but your entire kind of philosophical thing you've put forward only makes sense because it's predicated on the existence of God. Yeah, that's exactly so you've, right. You've grounded your entire philosophical argument here on a theological point, right? Yep. Okay. Right. Very good. No, no, exactly. That's very good. So the, um, the ambiguity isn't just an ambiguity at the level of philosophical contents, it's also an existential ambiguity. Because there is a pre-philosophical decision that the philosopher has to make with regard either to um, consider that being has some explanation, though it's transcendent, or being has no explanation. And so, uh, and so this is what I do with Blondell and Sartre, right? So on the one hand, Blondell says, being is fundamentally explicable, um, but the explanation is transcendent and so not available to philosophy. Or Sartre, who says, you don't have to explain being. Um, but because the decision is pre-philosophical, it's, um, it's the way in which the basic comportment to reality of the philosopher sets out two sort of basically diverging tracks in philosophy. Um, it's, I mean, it's what Lonergan eventually will call the, uh, intellectual conversion, right? Um, right. But then what's the like follow? So, I mean, you're bracketing being either way for freedom then. Like, I mean, 
is your account of human freedom substantially different if you just decide things exist because they exist or things exist because God? So the, in, the, in the case of freedom, the answer would be, um, so if you take the sort of Sartrean view, right? Uh, Radical freedom! Yeah, no, exactly, right? Is, um, that's the sort of irony of, of being in nothingness is that uh, he's so concerned about bad faith, right? And what do you do in bad faith? Well, you come up with these sort of reasons that explain your action when the real explanation for your action is you decided. You have freedom and your freedom is. Uh, and you, he says in existentialism, humanism, right? We are um, alone and responsible for our actions. And um, the irony is like, you've got this long philosophical treatise giving reasons for like, what at bottom for Sartre is a pre-philosophical decision, right? To just decide that being is fundamentally not an explicable thing, but is just a mere matter of fact. Um, so being in nothingness is a book in itself, a manifestation of bad faith. Um, if like me, you think being is fundamentally explicable and that's undecidable, right? I have to, you kind of have to just choose. Um, on the other hand though, if you're Blondell, well, my action is a part of being. And so it's too has some explanation, but it has an explanation that is ecstatic with regard to itself. And so transcendent of being, but it has some explanation. Um, and so the, so the beginning of L'Action, the very first question is, um, you know, true or false, does, does life have a meaning? Um, is there some destiny for our, for human action? Um, and so the, the, when it comes to freedom, Again, within a sort of philosophical ontology of freedom, then the basic comportment is not that there's no, there's no reasons for my action. I'm just free and doing stuff and I have to like live with that, right? Radical freedom, right? I'm condemned to be free. But rather, my freedom exists for a reason. Um, but philosophically, I don't know what that reason is, but I can operate on the heuristic assumption that there is some reason. Um, and, so, and that makes a big difference, actually. Right, that you it, it orients you to mystery in ways that are important. It makes um, like uh, for Blondell, it makes like a positive content of religion something that philosophy can like acknowledge. Um, which at his time was uh, at his time in France was not something philosophy was prepared to acknowledge that positive content of religion is something you could like talk about in philosophy. Um, but he's able to give a kind of philosophical account of what religion is doing, right? Religion is mediating the significance of human action into the um, mundane sphere. Um, it's giving us, it's, it, it, it's providing sort of proportionate terms in which we can try to will explicitly what is disproportionate to our being, um, which is, you know, not a bad definition of grace, actually. Um, so that seems to me when it comes to human freedom is the fundamental difference, right? Is does my, does my freedom have a fundamental meaning and purpose, even if that meaning and purpose is transcendent or not? And so my freedom just sort of stands on its own. And so I have to like imagine Sisyphus happy or whatever. Um, is that, that's Camus, right? Yes. Yep. Uh, in the myth of Sisyphus. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So that's the, that's like the, the, that's what I call the ambiguity of being, right? If, if, look, if you're going to really rigorously work this problem out in terms of a kind of philosophical ontology, Blondell was right. And philosophical ontology leads the philosopher to an undecidable, at least philosophically speaking, undecidable pre-philosophic choice. Um, one for the explicability or against the explicability of being in action. And so the theologian knows for or against God, really. Um, however, Ryan, uh, put an asterisk on one of my articulations earlier, right? That it's not just that God wills my freedom to be in its freedom, but also the products of my freedom as freely produced. And this turns out to be a really big deal because there's so much hand wringing about, uh, and Milbank really puts his finger on it. Uh, and I want to give him credit for this. Um, the status of cult, the theological status of culture and culture specifically as a construction, as something human beings make as a factum. Um, and this, this, my line of argument suggests that like, um, what, that, that there's a, there's a modern problem of the supernatural. So what we've been sort of dealing with the, the medieval problem of the supernatural, which is basically a, a synchronic theoretical metaphysical problem. 
but there's indicated from this uh, what I call a, a sort of diachronic and hermeneutical problem of the supernatural, and I call it the modern problem. And the question, the problem can be put as a question, and the question is, what is God doing in free human action? What is God up to? So if we take with Blondell the basic poll that says free human action has some meaning, has some purpose, but the, the meaning and purpose is supernatural, is transcendent, um, we, can, we can still ask, even if, even if it's not clear philosophically how an answer would be forthcoming, we can still ask, so what is God doing? I mean, what, is, what is God up to in my action? And this is a different question than the medieval question. Right? The medieval question starts from doctrine. And so it says God is up to something. And the question is, okay, how? Like, how's that working? How is God's action at work in my action? And this is sort of run the other way, right? Okay, so we have this theory of, the sort of Blundellian theory of God's action. Is, is it work in my action? So like, what's going on? What's God doing? What's the program here? Um, and that is something uh, that's going to, the data on it are going to be uh, the data on the products of human action, on human actions and their products. Um, Joke's on you. God's just messing with you. Just messing with us. I mean, uh, that's, uh, there are days when I feel that way. Um, I, as, I, as I tell my students sometimes, the interesting question is not whether or not God exists. The interesting question is whether or not God is an asshole. Um, and there's ample evidence to raise that question when you look around at the world. I like the Lacanian variant of whether or not God is a pervert. Oh, yeah, there you go. That's good too. <laughs> I like that one. Um, I think that would, saying asshole is upsetting enough to my students. I, <laughs> yeah. pervert I mean, that's, that, that pervert's a timely question because it's the Feast of the Annunciation on Monday. Oh my, okay. Um, that's a different podcast, I think. <laughs> No, but the, so the, so if that's your question, um, doing metaphysics, this is sort of, this was one of my gripes from the last episode, right? One of my gripes about the contemporary controversy about supernatural is everybody has these like background concerns about politics and, uh, secularism and culture and all this stuff. Um, and they almost to, a, to, a, I was going to say to a man, and then I was going to change it to, to a person to be, uh, PC. Uh, and then I realized, oh, wait, no, everybody in the discourse, uh, except maybe one short essay by Catherine Tanner is a man. Um, so to a man, asterisk, um, the, the arguments are all metaphysical arguments. Everybody tries to reduce these problems of politics and culture and secularism and all this stuff to, well, yeah, but if we just get our ontology right. And the problem with modernity, right, is, oh, that fucking SCOTUS and Occam. Uh, they messed up the ontology, and so now we have this disastrous modern Western culture or whatever the beef is. I love the nominalist fault paradigm. Oh, it's so good. It's right? so good. You can have this high medieval repristination project. So what we mean by medieval is really like kind of particular instances of Renaissance Catholic thought, but n- never mind that. Um, if you're interested in this question and you're listening to this podcast, go find Sean Larson's Modern Theology essay about Milbank and Hooter on the natural desire to see God, where he uh, takes Milbank to the cleaners using Walter Mignolo's uh, decolonial thought. It's so good. Um, but I'll let you read it because uh, if I rehearse it, we won't have time. Um, but my point is, look, if, even if you get the metaphysics right, which I think Lonergan basically does, um, you still haven't asked the modern problem. You're still just with metaphysical precision, posing the modern problem. You're still saying God is at work in human action, at work in human culture, at work in the world. And you still haven't asked, yeah, but what's God doing? Um, And that, it turns out, is a diachronic problem, right? Because it's doing, it's what God's up to in the unfolding of history. So it's a question about history. But it's not about history just as mere chronology, but it's history is meaningful. And it's history is made meaningful by communities of persons, and history made meaningful by communities of persons we call culture. And so it's a, um, it calls out not for a metaphysics, but for what I um, somewhat haphazardly have called a theological hermeneutics of culture. Um, that you have to engage concretely with cultures with a um, set of sophisticated theological tools, but also a set of hermeneutical tools to understand those cultures. And then also to, in a theological way, try to understand um, how those cultures are theologically significant. Uh, and so you might do something like what Lonergan says at the beginning of Method and Theology, which is mediate between a religion 
and the role of a religion in a culture. Um, and so, to the great annoyance of some of my listeners, no doubt, all of this two-episode preamble has been an argument from Thomist metaphysics for why you should go read Method and Theology. <laughs> well, I Robin, thought it was going to be an argument from metaphysics for why we could talk, like why we should talk about culture as like a real thing. But yeah, same thing. <laughs> <laughs> same thing. But no, I mean that is what I mean, right? Is that um, that it's that it turns out that if you if you turn towards Thomas's metaphysics, at least in this Lonarganian way and you drive at them as hard as you can, you come out on the other side not being able to just do metaphysics anymore. But you're, you're, directed, to, you're directed to culture precisely because for Thomas, operation is, in excess of, or is beyond essence, right? Operation is something more than essence. Operation isn't just a deduction from essence. Um, and so the operations and their products need to be you know, considered in themselves. Um, and especially when they're created by human freedom and freedom in it, human freedom and its cooperation with God, right? Because now it has, a, it has also has a theological significance because God is up to something in our cultural making. Um, and we need to understand as theologians, like what that might be. And, um, and you have to be, because you're dealing with the, um, those effects as, as um, meaningful and dealing with that meaning as it, as it accrues diachronically. You're, you're, it's another way of saying you're dealing with culture concretely, empirically, etc. And when you do that, you have to recognize the fact, or reality is going to at least push you to recognize the fact, that there's more than one scheme of cultural making happening at any given time, and indeed yep. across time. Mm-hmm. And so the consideration of God's action in terms of the effects we call culture is going to be a pluralistic project yeah it's in terms of cultures exactly mm-hmm. that's right so anyway that's kind of that's like the constructive piece of what i've been working on is um is that you know if you if you really drill down to the philosophical piece right if you if you take the impulse to deal with this in terms of philosophical ontology uh, really seriously and you engage with it in in detail um you can come out on the other side recognizing that there's two problems of the supernatural, a medieval metaphysical one and a modern hermeneutical one. Um, and you can also realize that in terms of philosophical ontology, philosophical ontology as a project is a fundamentally ambiguous project rooted in a pre-philosophical, a kind of fundamental pre-philosophical choice, um, which is just another way of saying like um, that people make philosophical ontologies and people have basic existential horizons. Yeah, I don't know though. Cause like, the problem here is it's really hard to get rich off of like <laughs> acknowledging the value of like all cultures. Whereas, I mean, if you're willing to like conquer most of the world because they're inferior, yeah. export your culture, import mm-hmm. all their resources, like it's just, you know, you can be racist and you can, you know, subjugate people. And I just think it's just can be I mean, racist. It helps. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean, right? Like, it, yeah. you know, and you can subjugate all these people and you have, like, this, like, great valid reason for it. I just think that, yeah, you can get, you're just going to get a lot richer in life. Well, and, um, and, and if, the, if you reject this view and you just take a classical metaphysics, which says there's one correct culture. Right. Um, so, yeah, I've heard your argument, but um, I don't, I don't know that I'm. <laughs> well, and, 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 and my. You did the PL and decided, uh, you know, the numbers just don't add up. They don't yeah, add, they just, they out. don't. I mean, yeah, it's, this is not coming out in my favor. As, <laughs> as my father said, if I'm ever rich, it'll be by accident. Um, <laughs> well, and, and, my, and my little bit of thumbing my nose uh, at Catholic theology here, at least in my context, is, um, you know, I, it, it lets me say that, like, the um, increasingly pluralistic, decolonial, um, culturally sensitive, et cetera, et cetera, modes of Catholic theology um, are good and needful. Why? Because of Thomas's metaphysics, <laughs> um, which, you know, feels pretty good. I bet that really flies at like Ave Maria. No, everybody, I, everybody's going to hate it. Um, no, nobody wants, this is my, I was saying last week, this is my spiritual gift is to come up with um, sophisticated metaphysical uh, theological solutions that nobody wants. I like it. Well, that, and that's probably as good a place to stop as any. 
thanks for listening to me ramble about all that stuff. Um, we are uh, on the Twitters at Systematic Pod. You can send us an email if this has really pissed you off at systematicallypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, if you want to help support the show, um, I know there was probably a little lag a couple uh, a couple weeks ago in episodes coming out, but we're working on getting that getting that fixed. Um, but if you nonetheless want to help support us, uh, you can become a patron of the show at patreon.com slash systematically. If you just give a, a little bit each month, it helps us cover some of our expenses. It helps makes the helps make the show more sustainable. Um, our intro and outro music, as always, is track 14 off of Ghost 2 by Nine Inch Nails. Um, we really appreciate you uh, listening and tuning into the show. If you enjoy this and want to help other people find it, if you could go to your podcast uh, portal of choice and leave us a review and subscribe and make a comment, all those things would be really helpful. Uh, and finally, go out there and be reasonable. <laughs> <laughs>